You can now get two free audiobook downloads and a 30-day free trial at audible.pagosity.tv. Your choice from the world's largest selection of over 180,000 digital audiobooks and spoken word content for your iOS or Android device, Kindle, or MP3 player. Go to audible.pagosity.tv now. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of November 11th, 2018. The podcast that tells you what I want, what I really, really want. This is your host, Shane Killian, and returning this week is Travis Retriever. Welcome back, Travis. Glad to be back, Shane. <laughs> Let's delimitate the news of the bogus. So it really seems like every year there's some kind of scare about Halloween candy, and we've covered this before, like stories of razor blades and apples and all sorts of things there, completely unfounded. What cases there were either didn't happen at all, or it was something like attempted murder by a family member, like there was a case of a guy who had just taken out a big insurance policy against his son and then killed him to get the uh, insurance policy, and they were blaming the Halloween candy to cover for it. Well, now it appears that Halloween candy has been wrongly blamed for a five-year-old boy ingesting methamphetamine hydrochloride. So meth, like in Breaking Bad, basically. Yeah. Well, no word on whether it was blue or not. (laughs) (laughs) So Fox 8 in Ohio ran a story of a boy who became ill after trick-or-treating. The boy's mother rushed him to the hospital, and it was determined he had somehow ingested illegal meth, quote, You could tell at the hospital that he was real high from whatever he ingested. He was really wired and kind of aggressive, had different mood swings. When he came home, he was real tired. He was coming down from it. And, of course, there were the usual appeals for parents to check their kids' Halloween candy, etc. And major news media outlets like ABC just passed along the story uncritically, you know, as they do. Yeah. And of course, while also wondering why the rest of us call them fake news, and as a rule, don't take mainstream media sources seriously anymore, but, you know. So as usually happens with this kind of story, suspicions that it was a Halloween candy fell flat after no other kids in the area got sick. The candy was found to be clear after being tested. Also, as it turns out, he hadn't actually eaten any of his candy at that point. The only thing he had put in his mouth was a pair of fake vampire teeth. So guess what got the blame next? The vampire teeth. And news media outlets, including the Washington Post, ran with that story, too. And lo and behold, they came back from the lab. They were negative. No drugs on or in or around them. Yeah, and uh, what mostly what I've been looking at is Fox 8's continuing investigation. They've got a bunch of stories on it, and some of the other local news media around... Uh, around that area too. And I mean, that the, the local media seems to do a better job of it. They seem to be a little more concerned with doing proper reporting as opposed to, you know, the sensationalist stuff to get in ratings. Although they do a lot of that too, of course, but so now the boy's father has been arrested after police searched his apartment and found meth as well as drug paraphernalia. The father himself also tested positive for meth. How it got into his son's system is still unknown, but this is how this story always seems to turn. It's not the candy, it's not the fake vampire teeth, it's a family member doing something terrible and either gave his son meth or his son accidentally ingested it somehow, but he tried to make it appear that the candy was the culprit. Hold on me surprised. Yeah, I mean, if only the news media had the capacity to learn. Maybe they'd stop being embarrassed by this and we'd stop calling them fake news. 
say, if you're tired of the promos in this podcast, well, the patrons got it early and with no ads or promos. Just go to patreon.bogosity.tv and donate at any level. Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttletwins, and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary-aged children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain, or regulations passed in the name of safety, and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 apiece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. Of course, Halloween candy isn't the only kind of fear-mongering we've had to deal with ever since 9-11. Government has kept everyone in a state of alarm over the possibility of a huge cyber-terrorist attack that threatens our infrastructure and our very lives, while at the same time not wanting us to have strong encryption. But that's another story. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to let you have the thing that might actually protect you from it. Yeah. So Robert Graham of Irana Security asked the question the news media should have been asking this whole time. Why hasn't it happened yet? You would think if it would have happened, it would have happened by now. Yeah, like 15 years later or 17 years later. Unless, of course, they're going to be like the end of the world fondies who say, oh, but that's, it hasn't happened yet, but it will happen on us. Totally cross our fingers. Wink, wink. Well, he wrote, one possible answer is that national security experts are ignorant. I get the sense that national security experts have very little expertise in cybersecurity. And we've talked about that before, the uh, appointees from Donald Trump and Barack Obama, they keep putting people in these positions that don't really know that much about computers, let alone cybersecurity. Quote, another possibility is that they are fear-mongering in order to support their agenda. That's the problem with experts. They get their expertise by being employed to achieve some goal. The ones who know most about an issue are simultaneously the ones most biased. They have every incentive to make people afraid and little incentive to tell the truth. And pointing out that it'd be pretty complex, like, the one, one of the few things our grid, power grid does have, despite being a government-granted monopoly, is apparently it's very diversified and... It's it's apparently fairly easy to hack just one miniature part of the station or whatever, but trying to hack enough of it to cause a massive scare or a massive giant blackout among a whole state would be all but impossible to do without people catching on and trying to put up countermeasures. Yeah, and, and they're all different systems that you'd have to hack different ways, so... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, if, and as they point out in the article, I mean, if you're going to develop those kinds of really nice skills then what usually happens to those people is they just generally end up just getting high-paying jobs in the industry, as is. Yeah, whereas the skills that they are using are things like phishing attacks, which, A, are not that difficult to learn, and B, aren't really a marketable skill that you could use to gain employment. Yeah. <laughs> so he says, quote, The most likely answer, though, is simply because they can. Anybody can warn of digital 9-11 and be taken seriously, regardless of expertise. It's always the morally right thing to say. 
you never have to back it up with evidence. Conversely, those who say the opposite don't get the same level of press and are frequently challenged to defend their abnormal stance. But what I think is especially fascinating <laughs> that made me literally laugh out loud is that one of the motivations for hacking for a lot of these uh, Arabic uh, Islamic young men is apparently to get gay porn, yeah. since it's strictly prohibited in those cultures and by those governments. Pretty much the only way they can get their rocks off would be to learn how to hack or do or get into some other, I guess, black market. You would think they'd therefore be for personal riots, but apparently they still want a subservient wife who manages the household and deep family ties that come with a whole bunch of children and stuff. Yeah, it's not the case that just because you're gay, you're for, you know, equal rights and all that. Yeah. And when you're from a very repressive society like that, that's the sort of thing that can happen. Yeah. But really, he says that the purpose of terrorism is to cause, well, terror, quote, Blowing something up causes more fear in the target population than deleting some data. Yeah. A gigantic explosion, complete that will often catch people's attention with cameras, and of the resulting people screaming, crying, and getting dismembered, and a whole bunch of other stuff I'm not going to say because I don't want this to get flagged. Yeah, that kind of stuff is a heck of a lot harder to ignore. <laughs> well, and also, as we've seen with the DNC hacks, it's really easy for people to kind of attribute it to whoever they want. I mean, I still don't think we really know who did it. It might have been the Russians, but, you know, the, the case against the Russians is nowhere near as good as we've been led to believe. And, I mean, it was really just stuff like phishing attacks that could have been done by anybody. So, I mean, if you're going to do that, they want credit for having done it. Which so, kind of defeats you know. the purpose of hacking, which is usually supposed to be more of a, you know, a stealthy thing, last I checked. I mean, it seems kind of counterproductive if your goal is to, you know, be a terrorist or what have you. And they also point out something about how it looks like the people who are drawn, who are violent and therefore drawn to terrorism, Bentifum, <laughs> excuse me, woo, uh, tends to be somewhat different from the folks and motivations that draws people into technical stuff. But what? yeah, it's like there are people who are drawn to violence, who are drawn to terrorism as a result, as opposed to, you know, being recruited into terrorism and then becoming violent. You know, it doesn't work that way. So it's, they're attracting the violent people. Yeah. And also, as he points out, these unqualified pseudo-experts get all the attention of the press and the press gives their warnings credibility instead of challenging them like they're supposed to. We're not fake news, you guys. Honest. Shh. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.bogosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home, and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. 
Also on the cybersecurity front, some good news this time on an issue we've covered before. A Florida appeals court has said that the passcode to unlock your phone or other device is protected by the Fifth Amendment, and you cannot be compelled to divulge it. And this is a case that surrounded a drunk driver who crashed his car. Police seized his iPhone and sought a court order compelling the driver, who was a minor, to hand over the passcode to his iPhone as well as his iTunes account. Okay, I can kind of sort of maybe understand the phone itself, but I'm not sure I get the whole iPhone, uh, the uh, iTunes account. Like, what, are they going to see if you listen to rap music that praises drugs or whatever? Well, I don't even no, get iTunes, iTunes has a backup of your phone settings and history and oh. all sorts of things like that. They've just called it iTunes because that's what it was originally, and they've just kept the name. If it wasn't obvious, I'm an Android user. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the trial court agreed to compel the disclosure, saying, The act of producing the passcodes is not testimonial because the existence, custody, and authenticity of the passcodes are a foregone conclusion. And some courts have found this before. They allow the foregone conclusion exception to the Fifth Amendment. If the police have reason to believe that the suspect knows the passcode, but the appeals court pointed out the problem with this. This exception comes from Fisher v. United States, which determined that the Fifth Amendment cannot be used to block the production of documents in response to, in this case, it was an IRS subpoena, unless the production itself would comprise an admission that the documents exist, the defendant is in control of them, and the defendant believes them to be authentic. If the existence, possession, and authenticity are a foregone conclusion, then compelled disclosure doesn't violate the Fifth Amendment, but otherwise, the mere act of producing the documents is considered to be testimonial. And therefore... It would be a violation of the Fifth Amendment, basically getting them to incriminate themselves. Right. And what they were doing was focusing on the passcode. Oh, well, we just have to show that he knows the passcode and he believes it's the right passcode, etc. But as the appeals court pointed out, the passcode is not the document itself. It provides access to all of the documents that might be held on the phone, and it's those documents that the prosecutors must have knowledge of, not the mere existence of the passcode. And they ruled, because the state did not show with any particularity knowledge of the evidence within the phone, the trial court could not find that the contents of the phone were already known to the state, and thus within the foregone conclusion exception. It is not enough to know that a passcode wall exists, but rather the state must demonstrate with reasonable particularity that what it is looking for is in fact located behind that wall. The evidence sought in a password production case such as this is not the password itself. Rather, it is the actual files or evidence on the locked phone. Without reasonable particularity as to the documents sought behind the passcode wall, the facts of this case plainly fall outside of the foregone conclusion exception and amount to a mere fishing expedition. This also sounds like a violation of not only the Fifth Amendment, but also of the Fourth Amendment of unreasonable search and seizure and due process and the like. Well, yeah, because the, the Fourth Amendment specifically prohibits precisely that kind of general warrant. You have to specifically say, this is what we're looking for, this is what we hope to find, and this is what we're going to seize. So they said, quote, 
The state subpoena fails to identify any specific file locations or even name particular files that it seeks from the encrypted passcode protected phone. Instead, it generally seeks essentially all communications, data, and images on the locked iPhone. Now, the appeals court didn't mention things like fingerprint readers and other non-passcode form of locks, but since they ruled that the true target of the search is the data on the phone, those arguments would logically apply there, too. And something else they also go on about is, oh, well, instead of having them say the password, having them write it down, but I don't see any difference in that whatsoever. Yeah, again, it's the documents behind the passcode prompt that are important. Now, state courts don't count as precedent elsewhere in the country, but when they're well-reasoned, other courts can take judicial notice of them, so hopefully they will here. Yeah. Of course, as I said at the end of the article, now, granted, this won't necessarily stop defendants from being left to rot in jail indefinitely until they produce passcodes, because apparently, I guess, the whole, you know, no unreasonable, cruel and unusual punishment bit is apparently not being honored here, but, I mean, you know, baby steps, right? Yeah, well, and I think this might also open the door for that because, you know, they can't just throw you in jail forever until you produce something that they otherwise can't compel you to produce because that's a form of compulsion, but that would be for a, for a separate decision to examine. We live in a world where light bulbs connect to the internet, and recent attacks on them prove that your online security is under threat like never before. Not only your websites, but the internet-enabled devices you buy. And the biggest problem is weak passwords. That's why you need LastPass. LastPass allows you to randomly generate strong, unique passwords on the web and on your internet-enabled devices, all protected by one master password. LastPass sets up in minutes and gives you secure automatic logins throughout the web, synchronizing across all your browsers, all your computers, and even your mobile devices, at home, at work, or on the road. It even securely stores sensitive form data, including credit card numbers, backup sensitive documents, software licenses, Wi-Fi logins, and more. And with LastPass Premium, you can get these benefits on other applications, manage passwords for your entire family, and also get priority customer support. Sign up at password.bogosity.tv for a free month of LastPass Premium. Log in securely everywhere using the last password you'll ever have to remember. Go to password.bogosity.tv and get LastPass now. And now it's time to deflate this week's biggest bogani emitter. And I keep saying it, if you're against nuclear energy, I don't want to hear one word you have to say about global warming. I'll never understand what environmentalists have against it. And the fact that they keep getting behind so-called renewables like wind power is just embarrassing for them, in my opinion. Ditto and solar. But that'll probably be for another time. Well, we'll... We've got a couple of issues around solar to talk about, but this one is primarily around wind power. But it came up this election year around Colorado Proposition 112, which would have set a statutory setback for oil, gas, and fracking that was so extreme it would basically have meant that you couldn't do it anywhere in the state. And given that Colorado is the country's fifth largest producer of natural gas, that would have been a big issue. Thankfully... 
Prop 112 failed by a fairly comfortable margin, but through it all, we saw environmentalist groups like 350.org and the Sierra Club claim that America can run solely on renewables. Well, one of the biggest problems with solar and wind is land use. With solar, this can be somewhat mitigated by putting on rooftops because rooftop, that's a land that's already being used. You're not using any extra land for it. But wind is a different matter. A new study published in Environmental Research shows that the power density of wind is actually a 100 times lower than that claimed by the IPCC, the Department of Energy, and numerous academics. A way they generally try to get around those is storing it in batteries, but... As always, the second law of thermodynamics is not their friend here. Each of those energy conversions tend to reduce the efficiency even further. Well, and also, what are you going to do if you need power and the wind's not blowing? Or like if you're somewhere up north and you get a snowstorm and now all your wonderful solar panels are covered in six inches of snow. Guess what? They're not generating electricity when you need it the most. But you see, in places like Arizona, they tend to generate massive amounts of energy. It's a shame that they're often blocked and prohibited by the power monopolies by the state because they compete directly with them. But it's a natural monopoly, you guys. Lol. But the issue they were looking at here is that previous estimates didn't figure in something called wind shadow, which basically means that if you have two turbines that are placed too closely together, the turbine that's upwind robs speed from the downwind one. And so you have to place them further and further apart which just does nothing but increase the amount of land you need even more. It's especially egregious when they say that this is viable, when they need about, according to this article, something like the amount of land in the entire state of California to power the entirety of the U.S. power grid, and that's not even including issues with growth and increasing demand for power. Yeah, and that's when the wind happens to be blowing at all those places at one time. So yeah, this is, this is not small. Oh yeah, and adding to that is also the fact that there's only so many places where the wind does blow, so of course you have to have even longer uh, power lines to transmit the power even further, which in course gives you ohmic losses, which reduces efficiency even further, so, well, there we are. It just, it just it's like a snowball effect, I swear. <laughs> the study looked at 2016 data from 411 onshore wind projects, which resulted in 43,000 megawatts, which is half of the U.S.'s wind capacity. They not only showed the far lower power density, but also showed that improvements in design and capacity figures had no effect on power density. And the reason why is that these bigger turbines must be placed farther apart, which cancels out the improvements. The researchers also found that large-scale wind farms would increase average surface temperatures in the U.S. by almost a quarter of a degree Celsius. And it would take the reduced carbon emissions that wind represents over a century to offset that. So in a hundred years, wind power ends up offsetting its own warming. <laughs> oh my god, that is pathetic. That is absolutely pathetic. Now, they did some look at solar. The authors found that the average solar power density is 10 times higher than wind power, but it's still much lower than is claimed by energy leaders, and they also found no trend of increasing power density in solar. Of course, this would be an even bigger issue if we just switched to nuclear. Modern salt reactors with thorium that, you know, can't blow up or can't melt down are massively efficient, clean, and would pretty much give us vastly cheaper 
and cleaner and much less land-intensive energy for pretty much the next millennium. And by then, who knows what we might have by then? Yeah, and, and you can also use the uh, existing uranium fuel and even the waste in sodium-cooled fast breeder reactors, which cannot melt down and can use pretty much almost every last little bit of fuel that's in there. Which we currently can't do right now because of idiotic government nuclear anti-weapons treaties. And if you really want to get rid of global warming that badly, there's a much simpler idea. Rather than cutting back, which would do nothing but, you know, just obliterate our standard of living, especially for those who need it the most, i.e. folks with severe medical issues who need that extra wealth or power to, uh, you know, be on systems that will prevent them from dying or help their standard of living be at least, you know, somewhat reasonable. Well, the ending, of, around the end, they point out that they're mainly doing this, of course, for the subsidies. That's right, this alternative power crap, or at least this stuff in particular, is just another government boondoggle. Well, environmentalists keep claiming that solar and wind are getting more and more efficient, but that just isn't translating to increased power density. And it's not only their ultra-religious devotion to it, but also their insane hatred of nuclear power, which makes all of these environmentalists this week's biggest bogon emitter. If you're going to shop online, use our special links to shop at Amazon. Clear your cookies and go to Amazon.Pagosity.tv, and you won't pay a penny more for your purchase. If you haven't used the mobile app in the last 12 months, or even at all, go to Get5.Pagosity.tv on your phone or tablet and get $5 off your order of $10 or more. Go to Prime.Pagosity.tv for a free 30-day trial of Amazon Prime and enjoy thousands of movies and TV episodes, borrow Kindle books, and get unlimited two-day shipping for free. And speaking of Kindle, go to Kindle.Pagosity.tv for a 30-day free trial to Kindle Unlimited, read over one million books, and listen to thousands of audiobooks on any device. You can go to music.pagosity.tv and get a free 30-day trial of Amazon Music Unlimited with access to Amazon's entire library of 10 million songs, ad-free and with unlimited skips, and even download to listen offline. All great ways to help this podcast simply by shopping at Amazon. And now let's expunge this week's Idiot Extraordinaire! And the gun control nut bars just get more and more extreme as time goes on. This time, it's Democratic politicians in New York who don't just want criminal background checks to buy a gun, but social media checks as well. Oh my god, and people wonder why we call them fascists at this point. Well, their proposed legislation would give law enforcement the power to check up to three years of social media posts and search history of any individual before they're allowed to buy a gun. And yes, they want to deny you your right to keep and bear arms because of wrong think. It'd be hilarious if it weren't so Orwellian. I just saw the title and immediately knew that that's what we're going to be dealing with. Well, if you think wrongly than us, then you should not be allowed to own a gun. It's also frightening that it doesn't seem to occur to them that they're wanting to infringe on a constitutionally protected right, that of keeping and bearing arms, based on their exercise of another constitutionally protected right, that of freedom of speech. I mean, what's next? Denying trial by jury to people who refuse to have troops quartered in their homes? Uh, don't give them any ideas. Please don't give them any ideas! <laughs> but but it's like they think of anyone who wants to buy a gun as a suspected criminal solely for the reason that they want to buy a gun. 
Listen to what Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams had to say in defense of this legislation. Quote, If the police department is reviewing a gang assault, a robbery, some type of shooting, they go and do a social media profile investigation. Look, if you don't realize the difference between investigating an individual who has already committed a criminal act and using someone's social media posts as evidence of a future criminal act, you have no business being in charge of anything. And how are they supposed to do this anyway? Are gun purchasers going to be required to hand over their passwords? Oh, God. Beyond any sane doubt that the left hates both freedom of speech almost as much as they hate the right to gun ownership. Yeah, it's ridiculous and unworkable, but if they try it, it'll be even more destructive. Hopefully it doesn't have a chance of passing. Even if it does, hopefully it won't get past the first court case about it. So, hopefully all it does is make these New York politicians this week's... Idiot Extraordinaire! Well, that wraps up this I'm Not Proud or Tired edition of the Bogosity Podcast. Come join the discussion at forum.bogosity.tv or discord.bogosity.tv and feel free to send a question, statement, news article, or rant in text or audio to podcast at bogosity.tv. This podcast depends on you to keep going, so please donate to Shane DK on PayPal, or if you want to use crypto, you can donate at altcoins.bogosity.tv. You can also support Shane DK on Patreon to get the podcast and my YouTube videos early and ad-free. Thank you for listening, and thanks to Travis Retriever for joining me. It was good to be back, Shane. Until next time, here's a quote from H.L. Mencken. Democracy and free speech are not facets of one gem. Democracy and free speech are eternal enemies. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity. Christmas time is coming, and the most classic of Christmas stories is A Christmas Carol. But how much do you know about the original Charles Dickens novella? Have you dismissed it as a children's book with one-dimensional characters amounting to nothing but platitudes and cliches? Maybe your appreciation of the book was even muted by those dry, boring, annotated books they made you read in school. My book, the sarcastically annotated A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, uses both facts and humor to present the book in a way you probably haven't seen it before. Giving praise when deserved and beratement when warranted, this book is put in the perspective of its time and shows a dimensional, multi-layered Ebenezer Scrooge from start to finish. Skepticism, history, and even economics are employed to show the book in relation to today in an easily accessible format. Appreciate the Christmas of your youth all over again, Get the sarcastically annotated A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, available at Amazon and on PDF as well.